Seth Siegel is a lawyer, activist, entrepreneur, public speaker, and New York Times bestselling author. He is an expert in water management and conservation. His first book, Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World, talks about how a government in one of the driest regions in the world revolutionized water management. His second book, Troubled Water, What's Wrong With What We Drink, presented an ambitious agenda for a fundamental rethinking of America's drinking water system. Seth Siegel, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Well, it's great to be here. I'm so glad that uh, the wonders of modern technology allows me to sit in Manhattan and you to sit in Paris and uh, us to talk to each other like we're sitting on the, on, uh, across from each other at a dinner table. Yeah, well, we're, this planet is large, but it's very connected. So you've spoken on water policy around the world, both in Congress and at the United Nations. In 2015, you wrote, Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World, which clearly outlines many innovations. As an entrepreneur, lawyer, and chief sustainability officer for the micro-irrigation company Endrip, you've really considered water scarcity from so many angles. As we're told that 36% of cities will experience water crisis by 2050, what can we be doing today to learn from Israel's success story and avoid crises? Well, what Israel has done, and which is the model for the world, and why I selected it as the model for my book, Let There Be Water, is Israel has put together a all-of-the-above strategy on thinking about water. And rather than traditional Western approach of a magic solution, or sometimes we say in America, a silver bullet uh, to solve everything. And so Israel does a great many different things. They have smart governance. They have, they have taken politics out of water management. They use market forces. They also are very humane so that indigent people aren't without water. They, they revere technology. They really use lots of technology, lots of parts around the world. They fit theory about water particularly in agriculture, is if it ain't broke, don't fix it, or this is not how my father or grandfather did it, so I don't need to change. In Israel, it's the exact opposite. The attitude is, it's good, it's very good, how do we make it even better? And then now we've made it better, how, how do we make it better still? So there's a constant ferment about innovation and technology is the way they express that. They do a great many different things, and in those many things, Israel, which is in the driest region of the world, and Israel, which has the fastest growing population in the world since independence in 1948, and the third fastest growing economy in the world since 1948 after, after Singapore and South Korea, all of which are, in, are generally indicia of water stresses, Israel has managed to be so water secure that the people there live as if they're in New York or London. And it's not just for their own benefit. They share their water with Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza and Jordanians across the Jordan River and the Kingdom of Jordan. About 60% of the household water in the West Bank that Palestinians consume comes from Israeli sources. So operating from this position of scarcity where many of us are really only now waking up to the fact that it's not taking water for granted. It's not only, the, often we're talking about climate change, but it's really water scarcity is one that Will, will affect all of us if we don't act now? Well, the greatest user of water by far in almost every country in the world is agriculture. And if you can reduce the amount of water in agriculture by even a few percentage points, you can transform the life of people in cities by having so much more water. I mean, on average, 
in advanced societies, about 70% of the fresh water is consumed every year is consumed by agriculture. In, in lesser developed countries, it's sometimes as high as 95% of the fresh water goes to agriculture, which means that you're depleting the amount of water available for the environment. You're depleting the amount of groundwater to preserve for, for the future, especially in dry times as we've been experiencing much of the world. And it creates a stress for the future that is problematical. But what Israel has done is it's created a situation where because of that water surplus, they're giving themselves a security that they can not only live a robust contemporary modern life today, but that they can have a comfort that they can plan for the future in a similar way. Yes. And tell us a little bit about the different approaches. I mean, what a lot of parts of the world are still practicing is this flood irrigation. Just talk a little bit about drip and then also end drip, because then that's another step in the evolution of this technology. Yeah. Yes, with pleasure. Um, I, I, I wrote it at some length and lovingly about drip irrigation. So I'll talk about that. I wrote about that and let there be water. Um, but since the book came out, a, a yet another Israeli innovation Endrip uh, came out, and and I'll tell you about that uh, in a moment. About five thousand years ago, <laughs> if I could, I, I don't want to go back too far in time, but about five thousand years ago, the people living along the Nile River and along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, the uh, Nile obviously in Egypt, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in, in what was then Mesopotamia, is today Greater Iraq, Turkey, Syria, and so forth. What they discovered is is that by building canals that came off of these giant rivers and flooding the flood, the, the plains around the, the river area, they'd be able to grow crops. Now this, of course, 5,000 years ago, the world population was rather small. There was no sense of export industry. And also there was not a lot of other technologies available. And so for about 5,000 years, that remained the only form of irrigation that farmers could use other than, of course, just rain, you know, relying on rain. And that's, rain is a difficult thing to rely on because it means that you're going to not really know how you can plan for the proper application of water for your crops. About 80 years ago, out of the United States was invented something called center pivot irrigation or sprinkler irrigation. And if anyone has ever flown across the United States, you've seen these large circles in the ground in Nebraska and Iowa and so forth. That's, that's these 120 to 180 acre plots. And that was a very effective means of irrigation. It was less water consumptive and less wasteful than flood irrigation. But it requires a great deal of energy to propel it. And 80 years ago, though, energy was very cheap, oil, diesel, very, very inexpensive to buy. And therefore, it was very comfortable for farmers to make use of center pivot irrigation. Then 60 years ago, out of Israel comes uh, pressurized drip irrigation from a company initially called Netafim. Now there are about 300 companies around the world that sell this technology. It was at its time a fantastic innovation. But... And I, I write about it, as I say, with great affection and respect in Let There Be Water. But over the course of the last 60 years, what we discovered is because of the expense of installation of pressurized drip, it's very expensive because you need to have filters to filter the water because only very purely clean water can be used. And then you need a lot of energy to propel the water across the field. But then what happens is these tubes drip droplets of water at regular intervals on the roots of the plants. So very little to nothing gets wasted. And so from a water conservation point of view, it's a fantastic innovation. But from an expense point of view and from an energy point of view, now that we care about carbon so much in the world, it's actually not as great as it was when it was first invented. 
So that led to a, a brilliant Israeli scientist who, by coincidence, I had written about at some length in Let There Be Water for an unrelated reason, to come up with an idea where he said, what if I were to invent a irrigation system that could be used widely by farmers? And what do we mean by that? Well, pressurized drip can only be used because of its expense, can only be used by farmers who grow what we'll call value-added crops, wine grapes, tree nuts, maybe avocados, a couple of others, or in places where the government provides massive subsidies to the farmer because they're trying to save on water. And this guy, Uri Shani, who I have said on many occasions is worthy of winning a Nobel Peace Prize, Uri Shani came up with an idea to bring the cost of the cost to, to, to take all of the benefits of flood irrigation, which is to say it's easy. And so any farmer can do it and it's inexpensive to take all the benefits of flood irrigation, but to get all the water saving and crop enhancing benefits of pressurized drip irrigation. And so just to summarize, what does this end drip irrigation do? First, it saves 50 to 70% of the water. You convert a flood irrigated field, you put these inexpensively and easily convert the field. You put these uh, dripper lines, these laterals, these sort of plastic tubes across the field, all recyclable plastic tubes across the field. You can bury them or leave, leave them on top. It saves 50 to 70% of the water over flood irrigation. It actually increases the farmer's yield by anywhere from 10 to 45%, depending upon how it's applied. It then reduces the amount of fertilizer the farmer needs, which is great from two separate perspectives. First, the farmer's greatest economic input is fertilizer. So the farmer can make much more money by saving about 25 to 30% of his or her fertilizer cost. And second of all, fertilizer is the largest contributor to contamination of groundwater and surface water, creating algal blooms. So that problem mostly goes away because of the way the fertilizer is now applied through N-drip, all of the fertilizer gets taken up by the crop and none of it ends up going into the field. And then we learned very recently in a complete surprise, because this was not being invented thinking about carbon. One of our biggest customers, a global Fortune 50 company, was curious to know what a, converting from flood to entrop would be on carbon and methane, and discovered that we reduce carbon emissions by up to 80 some odd percent, 83% when converting from flood to entrop. And that methane for growing rice or alfalfa or other commodity crops of the kind that farmers do flood with because it's so inexpensive, we discovered, uh, they discovered, they shared with us that the methane levels dropped to close to zero. So with rice being the largest contributor to methane after dairy cattle, uh, this is a game changer for the world. So it's a very exciting thing. Oh, it's incredibly exciting and just informative. And I'm really surprised how little we know. It's not just for farmers. It's not just the agricultural. Well, of course, agriculture affects us all because we eat it. But how little we know about just what comes out of our tap. And from there, then you wrote the book Troubled Water, which then is examining water in America. And what did you learn there? And where do you well, feel there's areas for improvement? Well, what happened was, you're correct in saying the book is about America, but it's not really only about America. What I try to say in the book is that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life researching every country in the world, but I thought that, that every country, especially every advanced country in the world, has a similar problem. And I wanted to highlight the problem and propose a variety of solutions. And the problem is this, 
We now live in an industrialized world. There are, just in the United States, about 130,000, 130,000, I want to repeat that number, it's just so everybody understands, it doesn't just fly by. There are 130,000 chemicals of one kind or another that are in daily commerce. About 50,000 of those are pharmaceutical products. And there's all kinds of testing of pharmaceutical products to make sure that they are proper and safe for people to make use of at the right dosage, for the right, for the right type of person, the right malady, and for the right longevity. But there is no testing at all as to what the effect of one of dozens of, of hundreds, thousands of chemicals will be on our health and safety. And in fact, the book is, is a statement about the, about the bipartisan failure of both Democrats and Republicans to address the lamentable state and the highly, highly contaminated state of our drinking water in the United States. We drink it all the time. I drink it out of the tap myself. But we have all kinds of micro doses of, of chemicals of different kinds, including to a very large degree, all kinds of, of um, pharmaceutical products. And I share with the book, the book is written for a general audience, not written for a scientific audience. For both, all of my books, you need no prior scientific, engineering, technical insight whatsoever. I sort of write that for a, for a very smart 11th grader in high school. But what, what I can say is, is that with the research that I, I found that it's mainstream research from respected academic researchers and respected government uh, reports is that on a regular basis in our drinking water, we find micro doses of all kinds of chemicals and all kinds of pharmaceutical products. And just as one may want to take, you know, a psychiatric medication because they're depressed or they're manic or, or they're bipolar or whatever they are, and a significant number of people do, or you, or you are trying to lose weight, or you're trying to prevent pregnancy, or trying to encourage pregnancy, or one of, again, I only mentioned a handful of things here, but there are, there are as I said, 50,000 pharmaceutical products that have been approved for sale in the United States, actually a little bit more. What ends up happening is people take those medications, they ingest it, they excrete it one way or another through sweat or, or pee or, or otherwise, and that water then goes to the wastewater treatment plant. It's treated according to U.S. law. Almost always it's treated properly, but properly does not mean safely. In other words, everyone adheres to the law, but the law was created 50 years ago without understanding of what the science was of the risk to us. So then it goes to the wastewater treatment plant, and then the water is discharged into a waterway, a river, a lake, and then somewhere else, possibly even the same community that abstracts the water, takes water out of that same waterway for their fresh water, adds a little bit of chlorine, which does nothing to kill off or stop or blunt in any way these micro doses of these other chemicals and pharmaceutical products. And we are then ingesting it. We, pregnant women, which means fetuses, newborn babies, immunocompromised people who have maybe have COVID or they're going through chemotherapy, and we are creating a second order magnitude health crisis in the United States by virtue of this. And there's all kinds of maladies that are, that are being baked into our society and our civilization now because of the fact that we are not intelligently and cleverly using the technology that we have already at hand to purify the water before either it leaves the wastewater treatment plant or before we allow it to go into our drinking water system and come out of our faucets and taps. You know, I'll say one more word about this. And that is that in the, in the days when I was traveling around a lot, 
I would say to audience, look, there are 130,000 chemicals that have been approved for use in the United States, including at least 50,000 pharmaceutical products. What percentage of them, or even don't give me a percentage, how many of them do you think are currently being regulated? How many of these chemicals are being currently regulated by the EPA? And people would raise their hand and say 10,000, 20,000, 40,000, 70,000. And the real number is under a hundred. And how is that possible? And as shocking as that number is, actually the number is about 70. As shocking as that number is, even more shocking is that the last time any chemical has been regulated by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is more than 25 years ago. So in 25 years where every year thousands of new chemicals come on stream and we discover through science that the dangers of, of old chemicals, it's just incomprehensible other than to understand the political process as to the fact that, that the best health for our citizenry is not being looked out for because of the fact that there are other interests who care and prefer to leave these things ambiguous rather than run up all kinds of costs to make our water better. Now, I, I want to say one last word is that I am not a, a, a hard left anti-business person, quite the opposite. I, I've been a businessman uh, for most of my career, uh, a lawyer and a businessman and an entrepreneur. And I believe oftentimes in the very valuable role that business can play in solving our problems, such as NDRIP and solving world water scarcity. I believe that there are many ways in which we can save the future and our health and our well-being through business solutions with government regulation. So I am not antagonistic to business, but I would say that business and government in this case conspire together because mayors and governors do not want to have the extra cost of making our drinking water facilities, whether it's wastewater or inbound drinking water, uh, better because of the cost involved. And many companies who are involved in this process of creating these contaminants are not interested in finding out what the health effects are because of the cost that'll be to them as well. So it's a, it's a, sometimes government and business are in partnership. Sometimes they're in antagonism. In this case, it's, I would say it's an unfair alliance that conspires against people, ordinary people every day. Right. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the concept of legal does not mean safe. So my question for you is what does making drinking water safe actually look like, at least in the U.S.? Is it a problem that can be fixed with technology or does it require more disruptive solutions such as the regulation of these chemicals that we use in everyday life as well? Well, I, I think that first of all, certainly s some regulation is, is appropriate. I think that it's, it's hard to imagine that there are only 70 chemicals out of so many that are dangerous. And the way we can find out, I, I, I am not necessarily the idea of guilty until proven innocent, but I do believe that what we need to do is two things. The first thing we need to do, must do, is start to have much more research and, and to understand what the health effects are of individual chemicals and then also chemicals that are commonly found in what sometimes is referred to as a cocktail. So maybe a little bit of Lipitor for cholesterol and maybe a little bit of uh, birth control pills and maybe a little bit of some other chemical for, to, to help encourage fertility and maybe another pill for, you know, for depression and maybe another pill for diabetes, you know, that sort of that, that cocktail kind of thing. And to try to figure out in some sense of combination, what are these drug interactions? You know, when, when you go to your doctor and, and he or she prescribes a medicine to you, if that doctor is acting in a responsible way, they have first taken a history from you to make sure that they're not going to be prescribing a medicine that is counterindicated by something else that you're already taking. And if so, then they'll try to balance what you're taking or they'll give you some alternative. 
Well, it's something similar here. So, so the first thing is research. The second thing is exactly as your question poses is that we have the tools. We have the tools, whether we do it on a gross national basis where every drinking water facility has to have filtration of a very high level before it goes into our drinking water system, or something as simple as we figure out a methodology for having every home on the main taps where people drink water, kitchen maybe, um, that, that home builders are now required to put some type of regular filtration that clearly can be, will require fil filters to be swapped out, but to have filtration built into the system. But as I point out in Let There Be Water, there's lots of other sources of this. In America, we use a septic system in much of the country. In big cities, we don't, but we use a septic system. So people flush their toilets or they take showers and then these same chemicals get into the groundwater and then your neighbor suddenly is drinking the durable chemicals in, that come out of, out of your medicine cabinet into your body and then out of your body. And, and so with filtration, we know, we don't have to invent something new. We know that we can capture all of these things and, and make ourselves safer and healthier. And I closed the book, well, I closed the book with a bunch of recommendations, but the penultimate chapter just before the recommendations is a profile of a, of a, a city in, in California just south of Los Angeles that has made the decision that they are going to purify their water to a very high level. And they do, and it's not crazy expensive. So they take sewage, they take actual sewage water and they treat it. And the water is so purified that you can drink it. And I have drunk it coming right out of the, right out of the purification system. My name is Evelyn Mall, and I'm an associate environmental podcaster at the One Planet Podcast. I am a junior at Barnard College, majoring in environment and sustainability. The conversation with Seth Siegel in this podcast episode inspired me to both question the systems we exist in and also to have faith in the changes that citizens and governments can make. In his first book, Siegel provides inspiring examples of water management strategies, one of which is recognizing the value of water, especially by educating children. When the value of something is instilled in us from a young age, we are likely to carry that appreciation for it into our life. Water is one of the few things that is absolutely essential to life and we must not take it for granted. This is also why we should pay close attention to the management of our water. Seth Siegel really speaks to the importance of the management of public goods, such as water, that we all have the right to, but also pushes us to ponder how these goods are being managed. For example, Siegel speaks at length about how the U.S. has not updated its water regulations in decades, enforcing the idea that just because something is legal does not necessarily mean it is safe. Siegel's book, Troubled Water, paints a complete picture of the U.S. water system and tells the story of how we got to the lacking water management strategies that are implemented today. Importantly, while he details the risks citizens are bearing because of water management, Siegel states that the book has no villains, but says there are many culprits and bystanders. This is the case in many environmental stories, where we cannot point the finger at a single villain, but instead must analyze the narrative as a whole to figure out how and where to implement change. Siegel concludes Troubled Water by saying, let's get the drinking water we deserve. 
no one else will get it for us. Siegel's book centers public awareness and involvement in working with the government to reimagine U.S. and global water management strategies and prioritize the citizens' safety and health as well as sustainability. Siegel's message of hope and action can inspire us to rethink how we navigate environmental issues and imagine a sustainable, replenishing world that is within our reach if we muster the courage to create it. With that, let's get back to the interview. You were just talking about solutions and recommendations in these water conservation issues. I know in your book you talk about the importance of public awareness in terms of these issues, and in Let There Be Water you talk about Israel's nothing wasted attitude and the importance of water conservation on an individual level. So I wanted to ask you what you can tell us in relation to the tension that many of us feel in regards to everyday action that individuals can take versus systemic changes, especially in this water conservation issue. Yeah, well, by the way, um, I, I can't thank you enough for that question because it's probably the single most important question that any individual can ask. The problem we face is that elected officials, and I, 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 you know, I know a lot of people are very cynical about elected officials and they point fingers, and you know, I think most of them do as, the best job they can. Not all of them, obviously, but uh, you know, hopefully that they come to office with the idea of service and not demagoguery and what the public can do for them. But in a democracy, at least, the theory is that the, our public servants are servants of the public. <laughs> you know, that's what we call public servants. The problem then becomes that even for the most well-meaning uh, public servant, is that they face a daunting list of daily tasks that they have to address, and, a, and an amazingly a wide array of topics in modern industrial society that they have to be on top of. So they tend to be on top of what people are screaming at them about. You know, maybe sometimes you get lucky and occasionally you have somebody who's, who comes to office having been the water commissioner of a state or, or growing up in a family where the father was a water scientist. And I've met people like that, but most of the time they come to office with very little awareness of water issues. They weren't city council people. They weren't mayors in the most cases, and they never had to deal with water issues on any level. So it's not something that they have any awareness of. If they're from a very dry area of a large farming constituency, well, then maybe you'll know about water scarcity issues and, and irrigation a little bit, but, but mostly they don't know about it. So that gets us to the issue, which is on any topic you want to talk about, on anything it is, how do you elevate it, the public official, so that it's not already a, a, a four alarm fire screaming, you know, fire engines blaring kind of racing to the scene where, uh-oh, we have no choice. We really better address this. How do you elevate it? And the answer to that, I think, is education. Citizens who care about this can band together, but, but they can do more than anything else. They can take it upon themselves to systematically educate elected officials. And I have personal experience with this. I spent close to 20 years, about 10 months of the year, every, every year, about 30 days a year, going to Washington, D.C., meeting with senators, meeting with Congress people to educate them about a variety of issues that I care deeply about. And I would say not every case was a success, but having met with them on the second time, the third time, the fifth time, the 20th time, they suddenly start to see the world a little bit through my eyes and they come to understand why the water, whatever I was there to see is an important issue. 
And I think that that's something that everyone can do. Everyone can talk to their, I mean, I know in France, and I don't know the governance structure of France that well, but, but you know, in, in American terms, you know, er, everyone can get to their city council person. That's not hard to do, even in a big city like New York, where I am. Most of us can get to the mayor if we, you know, are persistent enough. You can certainly get to your member of the House of Representatives and possibly get to, if not the senator himself or herself, you can get to their staff. And, you know, you're not going to get to the president so easily, but you might get to advisors to the president, all of which are things that I've done. And, and I'm just a citizen. I'm just a, a caring citizen. So, so I think that that's the ultimate model. And that's why I think it's the important question that you ask, because without, for better or for worse, without the input of our government officials, we will not solve the drinking water and water scarcity problems. Absolutely. And I feel that in today's day and age, there's a completely new dimension to all the crises we talk about, including the water crisis. So I wanted to ask you about climate change in the water crisis and how climate change will exacerbate the effects of the water crisis. Yeah. Well, I can say it this way, which is that, again, I, I don't know who, what circles you deal in, but given the fact that I speak so widely, I, I speak to so many different kinds of audiences, uh, and I try not to only speak to people who know what I know and believe what I believe. I think it's more value in talking to people who disagree with me so that maybe we can, they can educate me a little bit and I can educate them a little bit. But, but even amongst people who are deeply skeptical of man-made input into climate, and I'm sure you're familiar with that as a concept, even such people, and I have met them, of course, people who say, you know, it's a geological cycle and there was the ice age and there was the heat, you know, hot age and there was this age and that age and there was dinosaur age. And therefore we're just going through a geological cycle and, you know, now we're going through a, a warming cycle and this, this is not about humans. So even with those people, I think I have the winning arguments because what I say to them is fine. Okay, fine. Let's not talk about climate then. Let's just talk about water. And whether it is caused by W-H-E-T-H-E-R, whether it is caused by weather, W-E-A-T-H-E-R, or, or, or not, what we can say without any question is that of the last 30 years, there's either too much water or too little water. There's either flooding or there's drought. And that we can say without any question. And therefore, we need to prepare for that. And I don't want to get into an ideological argument because I find ideological arguments rarely if ever convert anybody <laughs> so so what i try to do is i try to address people only in pragmatic terms so no one knows if i'm a democrat or a republican or from a liberal or a conservative no one knows anything in that regard it's because it's not important i don't care all we can agree on is are you worried about higher food prices are you worried about the fact that the, that in the major growing places of the world there there are all kinds of water scarcity problems growing or already here is that a concern to you? Is it a concern to you if you live anywhere, if you're one of the 40 million people serviced by, say, the Colorado River Delta, whether it's Mexico or the United States, if you're any one of those people, are you at all concerned about the fact that we have hit historically low levels of the Colorado River? Does that concern you? And if it does, then let's talk about water scarcity. And, 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 if it, and, and, it, and it should. But if even that doesn't concern you because you think that's seasonal or it's going to change, it'll be a big snowfall next year or whatever, does it worry you that there could be global instability over the fact that food prices are going to start rising, as the United States believes will be happening, not because of this current you know, inflationary cycle because of COVID, but, but a more systemic thing. Food prices will be rising because water is going to be harder to come by. 
and more techniques are going to have to be used to come up with, or there'll be less food grown. And then countries will start to be shaky because the population is being restive. And then it's going to change our defense profile. Or are you concerned about the fact that the 2 million Syrian civil war refugees entering what the 30 some odd countries of Europe was so destabilizing that you have the rise of right-wing parties in a whole bunch of different countries in Europe. And I might argue across the Atlantic Ocean, it resulted to some degree in the popularity of Donald Trump here, his election as president. And that's 2 million refugees. What are you going to do when you have hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of refugees, water refugees coming from places where there used to be enough water to now there's just not enough water? What is the world going to do then? How are we going to deal with the instability of that? And so the way the answer to that is let's address it right now. Let's fix the problems where they are. So the people are not given an incentive to pick up and move to somewhere else, except in an orderly way, rather than a disorderly way, which is going to cause mayhem and humanitarian crises of a degree that we have never seen even after World War II. So that's what I say to people. And that's what I'm concerned about. I, I don't want to get into an ideological argument. I only want to get into a pragmatic conversation about how we solve these problems. So NDRIP is one solution, but not the only one. And I therefore say, just as I said about Israel earlier, let's not look for a silver bullet. As great as NDRIP is, it's not the only thing to look at. Let's look at the largest menu possible of ways that we can address water scarcity and water and, and too much water. Yeah, I mean, there's so many exciting solutions. I say be pragmatic. Of course, there's some people on the other side saying, oh, well, then that leads to, you know, imbalance of biodiversity. Or, But I, I love to hear these ideas, whether it's the weather makers or, or others work trying to work at, you know, greening deserts and the Sinai. I mean, things I would thought was impossible uh, or, you know, kelp forests as by alternative biofuels out in the oceans. Mia, by the way, I, I, I want to just say, and I, I, I think that I may have misheard you, but, but biodiversity is not an ideological comment. Biodiversity is a pragmatic comment. It, it, it's not going to be a very happy world if all there are is humans on the earth. You know, we, we, need, we need that biodiversity because not only is and if you're a religious person you want the biodiversity you know this is, this is god's kingdom and if you're just a, a secular person you want biodiversity because it's the healthiest possible way that you can you can have the world with every evolving species um so biodiversity is a pragmatic issue it's not it's not what i would classify as just a, a, as a nice to have ideological argument oh completely no i just mean it in terms of sometimes when i've broached it with people they said oh well if you if you make 5% of the oceans into kelps to serve our fuel needs, well, then it wasn't meant to be, you know, 5% kelp. So, yeah. so there's some issues where we're, you know, geoengineering, there's always a kind of balance, but I, I think, as you say, we have to face it pragmatically, whether it's issues of climate refugees, that's, you know, it's this is something we have to think about and and you you're privileged to have seen behind the scenes and had you know some of these uh, behind the scenes policy discussions where you know i i guess governments are talking about water security they're considering wars about water and and i don't know what those are discussions are like but we have to think proactively you know what else i think that we also need to make sure that we elevate water you, you know in paris is the headquarters of the oecd the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. I actually had the honor of being invited by the Secretary General to come and address uh, the OECD Assembly. 
Um, it, was a, it was a wonderful, great experience. But, but I would say also that one of the things that we all can do is to try to elevate water to a key decision point. So for example, in the ESG, right, it, which has become a hot corporate topic, I've had conversations with ESG ratings agencies and said to them, where does water fit in on your profile? And in most places, it doesn't. Where does the in intelligent use of water apply to what you do? So uh, again, just to use the example of Endrip, but by no means to think it's the exclusive example, because Endrip saves so much water, I said earlier, it saves 50 to 70% of the water for growing crops, converting from flood to, to Endrip. What, one of the things that we have initiated with, with surprising success is to reach out to high volume users of water who aren't farmers and said to them, how would you like that you could report back to your community and say on an ESG level that you are not stripping your community of its water resources, particularly in drier places. So for example, a data center can use anywhere from about 500 million to a billion gallons of water a year. Okay. That's a lot of water. Um, and if you want to do it in liters, multiply by about four. So, so you're talking about a lot, a lot of water there. What we have done is we've worked out arrangements with data centers, whereby we identify farmers who want to convert their fields to NDRIP and this water savings. The, the, the equipment is paid for by the data center, which is a de minimis cost, but the water savings is attributed to the data center so that they go from being sort of a villain in their communities to being a hero in their communities. They are now an employer. They're adding high value jobs. And guess what? They're now net positive or net neutral on their water use rather than becoming the largest of water users in their communities. So I think that there's a way for for us to think about this, that we bring together new approaches and new ideas to make ourselves live a more stable future as well. Yeah, I think that there's so many different incentives you can give to people and it's just, it's good business as well. I don't want to neglect because you are um, a, a Renaissance figure in terms of the many different uh, things you've been involved in. You've brought, uh, you know, a Broadway production of Manda Mancha to the stage. You're also an author of these inspiring quotes that I know that you've been collecting wisdom throughout the ages from remarkable people, other people's words. Uh, since you've been collecting since you were in 11th grade. I don't know many things we can fit into this, uh, but I want to speak about the creative aspect of what you do. Sure. So I would say of myself that um, I'm not a creative in the way that a creative is a creative. So I'm not a painter. I'm not a sculptor. Um, you know, I, I, I have tried to write nonfiction um, and enough to please myself, but, uh, but not enough that I think it would good enough. Although maybe I'll send you a copy of a novel and you can tell me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but, With pleasure. but not good enough for me to think it was good enough to, you know, give it to a publisher to try to bring to a commercial audience. Um, but I am a good, good enough writer that, you know, obviously my first book became a global bestseller. And in fact, just this morning I made an arrangement to have it translated to the 20 seconds, 22nd language. And it's exciting because I'm learning that there are some languages out there that are spoken by massively large numbers of people that, that, uh, you know, that sort of don't get a lot of attention, but at least not in the West, you know? So this language, uh, 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 just this morning's deal was just for uh, language spoken by 
80 million people, you know, which is a lot of people um, in, a, in a very dry place. So I think of myself as somebody who respects creativity. And I try to think of myself as someone who is a translator of creativity. Because I think that a lot of creatives, and I would say creativity is in more forms than just the classic arts. It's in science and literature and so forth. I think that a lot of creators, uh, a lot of, or creatives, have a strangely inarticulate inability to convey to a larger audience what it is that they are talking about. And, and so maybe I'm being not duly fair to myself, but I do believe about, uh, that my greatest skill is the ability to take complex or great acts of creativity or great insights of science and to then digest it and bring it to a larger audience so that they can not only enjoy it, but that they can benefit from it. They can not only enjoy the idea behind it. That's first. The second thing I would say about creativity is that I think that works of art, um, and I have a quotation to this effect, I think that works of art are persuasive uh, uh, against even the most uh, resistant heart. And that when you open yourself to the creative process, which is one of the great values of collecting quotations, because I'll explain why in a second, but the bite-sized nature of them, when you open yourself up to being happy to take it, it gives you the opportunity to do what is something that generally is only seen as something that young people do. And that is here I am. I celebrated my 68th birthday yesterday. So you could have said happy birthday yesterday. So, and, and so I'm not young, I don't pretend that I'm young, uh, but I'm still very active. But what I think I am very proud of is the fact that although I have some fixed principles of integrity and loyalty and honesty and things like that, what I am ever open to is new ideas and new approaches and, and mulling over the idea of whether or not what I, how I've approached the world is the right way to approach the world. And now back to the quotations, why the quotations? You know, we can read books, but it's hard to retain the totality of a book. We can tour museums or whatever, the same idea. But a quotation has the great value that in a few words, a sentence or two or most three, um, you have very important and complex ideas that by constantly re rethinking and reviewing and, and, and reapproaching, you get to understand it from multiple perspectives. And I maintain, I, as you say, I started collecting quotations when I was 11th grade, that's correct. By the time I put the book, let uh, by the, put the book, other people's words together, I had thousands of quotations to choose from, and I didn't want to just have a a dump of quotations. What I did was I divided into about uh, ten or eleven categories to try to show the growth of a person. And so, in my in my sense of it is is that I have reread my collection dozens, maybe hundreds of times, such that now each of these little nuggets have become embedded in my DNA, my intellectual DNA, my spiritual DNA, and it allows me to see the world in a new way. So I've gotten, the, the book has done much better than I expected it would to do, but, but I, I have been very delighted by the fact that people have read it once. But I actually think that the right way to approach this is to dip into it and to use it as a guide when you're feeling blue or when you're feeling very successful, as a way to temper yourself either direction as a way to address yourself when you're in a relationship that's going well or badly, uh, when you're in business and you feel you're not doing well, or you feel you're an artist and you're not succeeding the way you should. I have a great quotation about that. Um, so 
Well, just that the, the, the artist experience is always, uh, the artist experience is always that it's going to be disappointed. You try, you work hard, and no matter how hard you try, it will always be less great than you thought it was going to be. Even when it's great, it will be less great than you thought it was going to be. And it's, and that's actually a helpful, helpful insight for any creator. I, I think I go back to the collection again and again and again <clears throat> to, 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 to give me sort of balance in my life. And I, I'm often asked if I have a favorite quotation. And I think that the, the best answer is like a, a collector of a massive art collection. And you'd say that maybe I do have a favorite a piece of art, but, but it depends upon the mood I'm in right now, or who I'm showing it to, or the time of year. And I think that's true also of the collection, but there's one single quote that I have to say, and <clears throat> I've come back to again and again and again. I first learned it when I was in college. It's from a, it's from a 19th century British essayist uh, whose name was Matthew Arnold. And in this essay, he wrote, life is not a having or a getting, but a being and a becoming. And I think if you have that as the underpinning of your life, if you have only one quote to drive you, that's a very good one to have because it says in our consumer society that yes, of course, we are going to want more and we want to have things in our pockets and our wallets and our shelves and our beds and our, and our bedrooms. But what we really want is to be perpetually in a state of, 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 of being in the moment and becoming something new. And that's why I'm, I'm a great lover of, of the Matthew Arnold quote, which I'll repeat one more time. Life is not a having or a getting, but a being and a becoming. Oh, I love that. And I, I do feel that being an artist or being a creator, doing anything in this life where it is kind of a Sisyphean task, but that's where the com uh, comes the joy. I also like this one from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. They say it's apocryphal, perhaps. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather the wood, divide the work and give orders and instill in men to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I have, I, 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 that's not, that's in your collection, not in mine, but I will say to you, but I will say to you that I have many such quotations about community and about progress that are of the same kind of spirit and genre, uh, which is the idea that we, we need to do many things by ourselves. There's a lot of work we can only do by ourselves. I don't mean necessarily work of a job. There's a lot of work we can only do by ourselves uh, in terms of our own personal development or or in even interpersonal development. I, I'm married to the same woman for 41 years. I uh, utterly crazily adore her, probably more today than the day I married her. And uh, that's a lucky thing to say. But that's as a result, I believe, of, of the hard work that I have done uh, in, my, in myself to challenge myself and to say nothing of her and what she's done, but, but, but the, 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 to how to challenge myself to keep a relationship fresh and alive and new. And so th that quotation you have is true for society and to building society, but your quotation and my quotations are true also for self-satisfaction and self-development and also interpersonal development. It's it's a great thing that you've given in, in your various books, but in this, I think um, other people's words is something that can be enjoyed by all. And as you say, a quote for every moment, it's not just a quote, in that way you, capture the essence of these authors of these great thinkers and they become friends and you can carry that little those little kernels of wisdom with you um and i and i should say that uh i think that you are creative and i think that someone also has defined genius as being not inventing something totally new but showing us what was always there in 
sometimes it's so simple, but we only realize it for the first time. And, and I, I have a I have a wonderful quotation on that same genre uh, uh, in the book from um, Bernard Baruch, I think it was, and he said that said millions saw apples fall, then Newton saw an apple fall. So you know, and from that Newtonian physics was created. You know, so so you know, he sees an apple fall and he understands the world in a totally different way, and then gives us new eyes with which to see the world. And so that that's also a very uh, a very exciting thing that that we can open ourselves to by accepting the fact, our own, in a modest way, that we, you know, we may not have every answer, but that so many so many great answers can be provided to us or or coaxed onto us or suggested to us by by others. And I also say very proudly that because my reading has been eclectic throughout my life, I don't just read in one area, or I don't just read the great books of the great writers that there are many largely unknown people who are, are quoted in, in uh, other people's words. And I'm proud of that as well, to give voice to people who otherwise would, I think, be just lost to history, but have, have very important things to say. So of course, you know, Sophocles and Winston Churchill and you know, Charles de Gaulle, speaking of French audience, you know, are all there. Uh, but, uh, but, but not just them. I mean, and Shakespeare, of course, but, you know, but not just them, but also people that, that few people have ever heard of, like a, who, who are they kind of thing. And I originally thought when I was first conceptualizing the book, my publisher asked me to write a, a, a like a two sentence biography of everyone quoted in the book. And there's, there's about 1200 quotes and about 900 quotational authors in the book. Um, and then I started to do that. And aside from the, uh, very long and tedious function of that, I, I came back to the, uh, my publisher, uh, and I said, you know, everybody has a computer. <laughs> anybody, anybody who wants to know who Mia Funk is <laughs> can simply <laughs> type in the words Mia Funk and find out, you know, everything they need to know. So they, 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 they laughed, they agreed. They said, yes, better to have more space for quotations than less for biographies. So. Well, it's so true. And so thank you for sharing us, um, giving us new eyes onto the world a as it is, and also to help us imagine as it as it might be. Uh, thank you, Seth Siegel, for your work as a creative translator and sharing tools to help us avoid water crises and how we can better manage this most valuable resource that gives life to everything. For sharing inspiration and insights that inspire and unlock human potential. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Well, I want to thank you. This is about as delightful an hour as I can remember spending with anybody. Thank you. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Evelyn Moll with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate producer of this podcast is Evelyn Moll. The digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. The theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.